0: Welcome to this audio recording by the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. We are a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization dedicated to promoting public awareness of global issues and the ways in which they affect the Dallas-Fort Worth region. Become a member today at dfwworld.org and help us connect North Texas with the world. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haines and Boone, LLP. We hope you enjoy it. I'm Jim Falk, President of the World Affairs Council, and thank you so much for being with us today for a very special presentation, Hungry and Naked, A World Without Agriculture with Dave Everett. This event is also part of the Council's Global Connection Series, and I'm especially grateful to Lucy Billingsley and her daughter, Lucy Page Billingsley, uh, for their generous support of this entire series. Last night I had a special privilege, a pleasure of meeting with Dave uh, over dinner at Fairings. You know, it's a tough job and somebody's (laughs) got to do it. Uh, This was kindly hosted by our friends at, at Deloitte. And uh, when Dean Fearings came by, uh, he and Dave quickly established this, this rapport, and they figured out that about 85% of our meal had been touched by John Deere in some shape, form, or fashion. And that's probably the same thing here today at the Crescent, as we enjoy our lunch at the Crescent, our strategic partner. I also want to thank Mary Speth. Mary, thank you so much for your continuous support of the Council. Uh, you certainly made this event possible. Whenever I see Mary, I go... Give me some ideas. You are so well connected. Who should be our next speaker and who can you help bring to Dallas or Fort Worth? And, and let me also mention, if you don't have the uh, the benefit, the fun of receiving her monthly emails, you need to ask her. Uh, I'm sure you can send her an email. She sends some of the best communication tidbits, what to do, who, who has done something well, and who has really made a blooper. I want to see what you're going to do with uh, the former uh, princess of, of, of y- Duchess of York next week. That'll, that'll be fun. But really, Mary's reputation is so well-deserved in the field of corporate strategy and communications. Would you stand up so everyone can, can see who you are? Mary Spade. Today's program is also part of the Global Business Series, and I want to thank the Dallas Business Club and their members for being here today.
1: It is indeed a pleasure to speak to you today about an issue that I believe affects every person on the planet. Now that may sound a bit dramatic, uh, but when you're talking about the development of doubling the world's food supply in only 40 years, a little drama is necessary. I'm not one to make uh, wild (coughs) predictions if you know me at all. Uh, First of all, they can get you in trouble. For example, Thomas J. Watson, the founder of IBM, who went on record as saying there's a world market for about five computers. And in 1899, the U.S. Patent Office boldly proclaimed that everything that can be invented has been invented. (laughs) Now, if that weren't enough of a warning against uh, making predictions, we've also made a couple of boners at uh, John Deere, too. And I have a memo here that was published in September 23, 1918 by H.M. Railsback, our director of publicity at that time, and he told the sales branch managers that they must make sure that their advertising, and I quote here, does not boost the tractor at the expense of the horse. (laughs) Talk about missing the boat. He went on to say that the foundation of John Deere business is building agricultural implements for use with horses and that there's there's much to substantiate a conclusion that the horse will always be the mainstay of the farmer in much of his operations. So, despite all the failed uh, predictions, though, I'm still willing to make one of my own today and assert to you that if we ignore the looming productivity challenge of doubling the world's food supply or simply not acting fast enough, chaos could and probably will result. That being said, I'm typically not the scared straight type of guy and I think the good news is that all of us can rise to this challenge and I'm here to share with you what I see as a solution a path we can all take that will ultimately improve the lives of untold millions and I hope that by the time of our by the end of our time together today you'll agree with me I want to lay the groundwork based on what I'm calling our world challenge which is essentially How to Feed an Ever-Growing Population in the World of Tomorrow. I will discuss today the role of innovation and technology and how they play a key part in improving productivity and how we at John Deere support research and development. And I hope you'll also be pleasantly surprised at agriculture's dedication to environment-friendly equipment and tactics. In fact, many of the farmers I've known and met around the world like to say they are the original environmentalists, and I tend to agree with them. Next, I'll outline exactly why investment in rural communities is so important and so important to the success of this challenge. And finally, I'd like to discuss with you how trade policies and access are the cornerstones of bringing this all together. So why is this such a big deal? Well, for starters, global population growth is inevitable, and it's creating challenges never faced before by (coughs) agriculture. So you may know that there's 142 people born every minute. 8,500 every hour, 204,000 every day, 6.1 million every year, such that by 2018 or halfway to 2040, we'll be adding 74 and a half million people around the world every year, most of them in Asia. So the simple facts are, by 2050, we must double the food supply to feed an additional two and a half billion people that will inhabit the earth, and again, most of them are in Asia. Not only that, we must do this without an abundance of new resources, especially land and water, while respecting society's desire to minimize agriculture's impact on our environment. What does that mean? Well, essentially, we have to produce twice as much with essentially the same amount of inputs in just 40 years to say that we've got our work cut out for us is a bit of an under, is a bit of an understatement it's a little bit like saying the obama administration taxed slightly to the left the good news i hope that doesn't get me in too much trouble <laughs> the good news is i'm confident we can meet this productivity challenge with the help of farmers throughout the world where there's a producer in iowa with 3000 acres of corn or a farmer in France growing sunflowers for their oil they produce, or a family farmer in Korea who is growing rice to export to Africa. While population growth will most definitely fuel the demand for more food in the future, rising incomes will accelerate that demand. For example, in the next several years, approximately two billion people or a third of the world's population today will, are expected to join the middle class. Most of that projected growth will occur in urban areas of developing countries. Rising incomes means improved diets, with much of that additional income spent on increased protein intake. So these two factors, population growth and improved diets, are the fundamental reasons why we have to double our output in 40 years. Feeding the world is essential to maintaining an orderly society as well, and helping each and every person achieve his or her full potential. Sadly, it doesn't take much imagination to consider what could happen if we don't take steps to minimize, this close or, er, minimize or close this uh, productivity gap. Think back to 2008 when commodity prices skyrocketed, which caused significant increases in food prices in many countries of the world. In some regions, it was just an inconvenience. But in Egypt, for example, it was a near catastrophe. It's frightening to consider what a toppled Egyptian government could have done to shutting down major sh- shipping lines, or causing a spike in oil prices, or bringing massive political instability to an area that is very volatile to begin with. In addition, emerging, emerging nations felt the rumbles of, brought on by that uh, sharply higher food prices that are making changes today. And a week ago, literally a week ago today, I was in Ghana meeting with the Vice President of, the, of uh, Ghana, and he told me that their country import $600 million of rice each and every year. And they know that they can't continue to do that. It's not sustainable. They need to improve <clears throat> agriculture for su- uh, security and sustainability. It's important for their future. So I think these examples illustrate a few basic givens that must never be forgotten. People must eat. People need to be able to afford food and fuel. And the world depends on agriculture to be the foundation of global security. So back to the question at hand, how does our industry produce more with basically the same global resources that are available to us today? Well, no one person or no one company can do it alone. For example, John Deere is proud to be a founding member of the Global Harvest Initiative. This is an organization dedicated to spurring agricultural (laughs) development and encouraging agricultural innovation by those who need it most. The Global Harvest Initiative supports a multifaceted approach to expanding agricultural production, realizing there's no single solution to close the productivity gap. And I encourage you to visit the website at globalharvestinitiative.com and sign up for policy updates and read their blog so you can stay engaged and and understand what issues we're working on. Also, at the heart of improving productivity and feeding the world is the issue of innovation and technology. I'm proud to say that the ag industry is making amazing strides in this department. <clears throat> For instance, we all know that farmers have historically early risers and their daily output was directly correlated to how much daylight was available or sunlight is available. Now, with technology, there's virtually no deadline based on daylight. And the picture you see here is a John Deere 8000 series row crop tractor tilling a wheat field in northern plains of the United States at night. Thanks to innovative technology, staying on track in the dark and operating in virtually every type of weather is not an issue. That adds to productivity. John Deere puts his money where its mouth is when it comes to innovation as well. We spend more than two and a half million dollars each and every day, that's each and every day, holidays and weekends included, on research and development, and what we've come up with is many times downright revolutionary, for, for example we continually upgrade the capability of our equipment, and the smallest U.S.-made combine that we produce today has more capacity than the largest one we produced just 10 years ago. But that's just the beginning. We integrate satellite systems and machine automation to improve productivity like never before. Our GPS or global position systems ensure true precision farming by eliminating overlap in the field, which minimizes fertilizer and pesticide use, improves fuel economy, and provides other environmental benefits while reducing the farmer's costs. Extending GPS capabilities by offering nutrient management capability is another key area for us that allows producers to more accurately manage placement of fertilizer, making them those better stewards of the environment. And speaking of the environment, water is a precious and very scarce resource, even in the Great Plains of North America, and maybe even in Texas, too. Reduced tillage equipment, both low-till and no-till, help producers reduce costs and improve water management and increase yields. And our new investments in tape and drip irrigation systems ensure that farmers are able to safeguard their water supplies by applying water with near precision or pinpoint accuracy. These systems use one-fourth of the irrigation that are normally used in, in conventional systems. And finally, our efforts of late involve integrating all these systems and capabilities into something we call coordinated farming. Coordinated farming is a practice of syncing up data from our equipment to the farmers that use them, to the dealers that sell them, and to the the technicians that service them, which essentially allows everything to talk to everybody. By leveraging efficiencies for the farmers of all sizes around the world, We believe coordinated farming will drive us to the next level of productivity and prepare producers to feed an ever more hungry world. Technology and innovation are tools that make productivity improvements a reality, but it's not enough without complementary investments in rural communities. Whether in West Texas or East Central Punjab in India, rural economies have to be capable of providing a meaningful and sustainable living for those that feed the world. The United States has the opportunity to be leaders in this area by introducing new technologies and sharing those technologies and useful useful practices. After all, our country has always played a key and dominant role in advancing the human condition. However, this is not just a U.S. issue. We must work to close the productivity gap through strategic investments in rural communities in both developed and developing countries. In developing countries, where the word rural and agriculture are are synonymous, a majority of residents are engaged in some aspect of agriculture. Investing in hard and soft infrastructure in these rural areas will help prove the lives of large segments of the global population while expanding agricultural output. By hard infrastructure, I mean farm-to-market roads, electrical power facilities, storage, water management facilities for flood control and irrigation, inland waterways, blocks and dams, rail lines to facilitate distribution and trade. Soft infrastructure on the other hand includes appropriate policies in the elimination of legal and financial and social barriers to land ownership, property rights delineations, definitions and protections. The needs of developed countries however are quite different but just as important. Farmers will need different levels of expertise and skill sets while mechanization and automation and technology help productivity, more training and education will be needed to maximize producers' potentials. Plus, it's getting more difficult to find qualified technicians, to, qualified candidates to fill technicians' positions. These are good-paying jobs at our local dealers that help maintain a vital rural economy, and the income they generate, the income they create, supports the desirable quality of life in rural America. In addition, ag-based energy helps rural America prosper by creating new jobs, increasing the tax base, and diversifying local economies. Energy also provides important new markets to commodity producers, which improves their own productivity, and in turn further stimulates rural development. Furthermore, the development and deployment of information technologies is essential to fully capture the benefits of economic development in rural communities. In an increasingly flat world, rural access to information technology is needed to educate our youth to compete globally and to develop the skilled workforce on which rural communities and businesses will depend. Bringing these enhanced telecommunications and broadband technologies to rural communities will enable them to more fully develop value-added businesses and business opportunities. It is not sufficient to promote revitalization of rural communities, however. We must work to ensure their long term prosperity. If we do that, then we will be much closer to winning the world challenge. Maximizing the benefits of rural development requires commitment, innovation, investment, and leadership from everybody farmers, businesses, governments, educators, civic and public interest groups, people like you. We must work together to define and prioritize the needs that best lead to rural communities' prosperity. Now this leads me to my final point, and perhaps the most important, and that's the access access to trade and uh, favorable access to trade. Favorable trade policies and access are two of the most vital areas in this world challenge, and it should be an interest to all of us here today. The word word access to me says it all. It's about opening up markets and ultimately empowering others, and I'd like to share with you a real-life example of the power of access and open trade. Last week, as I mentioned, I was in Africa. I visited five countries in five days to visit John Deere customers and dealers. And the highlight of my trip occurred in Kenya. We left Nairobi by SUV, traveled out into the Rift Valley, one of the most beautiful and, and stunning places on Earth. And it's near in, in, where, in 1984, the paleontologist Richard Leakey discovered Turkana Boy, the most complete skeleton of a prehistoric hominoid ever found. We arrived at the customer's farm along the beautiful shores of the deep green Lake Naibasha. This customer, whose name is Ron Karturi, operates several farming operations in Africa and India and includes a 300,000-acre operation in Ethiopia. But in this farm, he grows roses, lots and lots of roses. Each day, his employees handpick, pack, and ship approximately one million roses to Europe, think about that, one million roses each and every day. His entire livelihood is dependent on access and trade. Now, here's the really good part and what I didn't expect to see. Thanks to access to foreign markets, this man is able to support his community in the the villages in which he operates. He's built a hospital that offers free medical service to his employees and their families and provides that service to others in the area for nominal charge. And he's built a preschool a grade school and a high school, ensuring that the, citizens, or the children of his village are better prepared to prosper as global citizens. In fact, I was amazed to learn that 67% of the kids that graduate from that high school go on to college. And Here's a glimpse of what the welcome my colleagues and I received at the grade school. great example, I think, of the far-reaching benefits of access and open trade. It becomes very personal. At John Deere, we clearly understand the challenges and opportunities of open trade as well. We are a global company with 40 percent of our sales outside of North America. At our flagship tractor factory in Waterloo, Iowa, for example, we ship fuel-efficient row crop tractors worth a quarter of a million dollars each to more than 60 countries around the world. At the other end of the scale, we produce a basic 36-horsepower tractor in Pune, India with a price tag of about $6,500. While this tractor was specifically designed for the market in India, we also ship other models from this factory to 60 markets around the world, including the United States. In fact, John Deere has been the largest exporter of tractors out of India for more than five years. But even with operations in 35 countries and more than 50,000 employees, we can't produce everything everywhere. So we must be able to freely move goods and services around the world to leverage our resources and maximize value that we can bring to the customer. Global trade and open economies are imperative if we're to feed an additional 2.5 billion people by 2050. Now, as you know, trade, like a lot of other aspects of our economy has been deeply affected by the global recession in the last 12 months. Trade is the closest link to consumers, an essential, an essential driver of sustained global economic growth and development. Unfortunately, there has been a rise in protectionist action spawned by the downturn. Governments around the world have imposed various measures aimed at protecting local businesses, but many of those have backfired. And Let me give you a couple of examples. Last year, the U.S. stimulus legislation contained Buy American provisions requiring that all iron, steel, and manufactured products used in publicly funded building and works projects to be produced in the United States. These provisions were particularly damaging to the U.S. trade relations with our largest trading partner, Canada. Additionally, Russia has undertaken protectionist actions including increased tariffs on agriculture and forestry machinery and limited the imports of poultry and pork from the United States, much of that in reaction to things we have done. Once you start the process, you elevate and and exacerbate the problem, and 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 people get hurt. As these protectionist measures continue to grow, I believe the world will look to the U.S. to exhibit leadership on trade as it has in the past, given the size and significance of the international markets and our impact on those. While our country is frequently criticized for the global roles we take, it is nonetheless acknowledged that no multilateral progress will be made on liberalizing trade unless the U.S. and our administration get engaged. In this year's State of the Union address, President Obama called for a doubling of U.S. exports over the next five years. This new policy, which he called the National Export Initiative, focused on three activities: First, the export promotion through greater coordination among government agencies. Second advocacy assistance for commercial interests through the Department of Commerce with foreign officials, and finally, the creation of a new government cabinet-level group uh, group for export promotion. Now, funds have been allocated for this initiative, but many analysts and and, and I also would suggest to you that it's unlikely that the creation of another government agency or cabinet-level position will be sufficient. It's really important that we proceed with innovative, groundbreaking strategies to make a difference. Market access and the removal of trade barriers will be critical in meeting this t- global challenge that I've been describing to you, but they're not, offic- unfortunately, they're not addressed in the National Export <clears throat> Initiative. In fact, the fact is, no country has achieved sustainable economic growth without actively participating in a global economy. We at John Deere are personally invested in this, and you should be, too. Against the backdrop of the many issues on our nation's agenda today, trade has unfortunately dropped in significance, and I believe, and I hope I've made the case to all of you, that trade deserves more attention. If you agree with me, I encourage you to raise the issue of favorable trade policies with your elected officials and support organizations dedicating to meet the world challenge for agriculture and for food production. Well, in closing, you might be wondering where the title of today's speech came from. I came across a great t-shirt from an FFA National Convention a few years back that nicely sums up all of my comments today. It's pretty simple. You may not have a lot to do with rural America, but each and every one of you depends on agriculture, for without it, we'd all be hungry and naked. Feeding the world transcends politics. Feeding the world is essential to maintaining an orderly society and helping every person reach his or her full potential. It's John Deere's heritage, and it's our customers' calling. And I hope I've convinced you that it should be in your best interest as well. Thank you very much, and I'd be happy to answer some questions. Uh, my question is, uh, is about India, uh, particularly because of the comments about the, the great work that you're doing there. Um, so two parts of the question. One is comment uh, on issues dealing with fertilizer and subsidies and how that uh, contributes to the challenges they're facing now. Uh, but more importantly, what are you doing from an equipment manufacturing perspective to deal with the fact that so many of these farms are very small acreage uh, family farms? All right. Well, in the first case, um, uh, the issue of fertilizer and pesticides, Seed varieties and even water are uh, pretty significant in India. And you may r- recall that uh, Norm Borlaug with his Green Revolution really helped the advancement of agriculture in India. It's time for another Green Revolution because they've, they've, the practices of stymied, water is too inexpensive. The power to pr- pump it is free. There's no uh, – uh, so they'll over-pump water, get uh, saline and, and salt in the soil. Then they apply more chemicals and, and – so, and, and the subsidies continue that process. So what we've been working on with uh, the various government agencies there is how can we interface with them and bring others together through this Global Harvest Initiative to begin educate and provide education. It's almost literally every customer experience at a time because the government is more interested in macro policies and, and sometimes it gets lost, it gets there. But it's a big challenge. I believe that the government officials I've talked to understand it. They just haven't figured out how to do that. You know, it's, uh, with apologies to anybody in the room who has came from India or has relations there, I, I'd have to I have to share with you an example of, or uh, experience I had in one of the first times I went over there. And I was in a cab in uh, in uh, in Mumbai, and uh, and uh, talking to the cab driver, and and uh, we were dis- he was we were, he was describing India to me, and uh, and he. He said, you know, the, India is a, the world's biggest democracy, greatest democracy. He said, we have the British to thank for that. And he said, we also have uh, our bureaucracy was given to us by the British as well. He said, but we perfected it. <laughs> bureaucracy is an issue for them. And, but I'm, I'm hopeful. I mean, the new government that came in uh, and their focus, I'm hopeful on that, and there's a lot of activity. It's not going to change overnight, unfortunately. The other issue is small land. And that's as much a cultural issue as anything else because in the, in the Indian culture, what happens is if you have five hectares and two sons, then the two sons each split the five hectares, or they split the five hectares, so each end up with two and a half, and their sons split, and their sons split. So that you end up smaller and smaller plots, and the families have to get along together to amalgamate the land to make it productive. This 36-horsepower tractor I referenced, we built, uh, uh, we, it was a clean sheet design from the ground up. Uh, We are taking technologies from products we produce elsewhere, downscaling them, reframing them, and we're in the process of introducing small combines, uh, small uh, cotton pickers, small rice harvesters that are sized for that product, but it is a challenge. and um, uh, So you'll have uh, large uh, farming operations with lots of small plots, but uh, that's not the only place in the world where that goes on either. But uh, it, the Green Revolution is, is is necessary. And I think the government recognizes it. a lot of work to do. That's a great question. Question there. Thank you for addressing uh, everything you're doing in India. But every world-oriented conversation about growth and what have you touches on China. Uh-huh. Can you address a little bit about what you see, either what you're all doing, what you'd like to do, maybe what are some of the answers, in addition to government relations, but what can uh, the free market participants do? Sure. Yeah, thank you. I, yeah uh, I, uh, I apologize for not including more comments on China. You know, we've been in China since 1975 as a company. Um, and uh, today we, are the, we have more than 5,000 employees in China. We, we are the uh, second largest, largest producer of combines in China and the third largest producer of tractors in China. And um, and and we are rapidly putting in place uh, di- distribution infrastructure, much like we have here in the U.S. And uh, we have large. Uh, we ship a lot of large tractors into the Northeast, so we we're really engaged in in agriculture. A couple of examples I'd give you. First of all, the government is very focused on agriculture. This issue of food security for the Chinese government is a big deal because they've got a their population is very dramatically split between the rural and the urban population. And the rural population is not gaining wealth as fast as the urban population. So they're have they've got, to, they've got to, they're spending a lot of money on tractors for the, uh, the rural population. In fact, uh, a 40-horsepower uh, tractor that we produce in south of China, a customer can buy it with a 70% subsidy from the government. So they're very focused on that. Uh, what we're doing there is we have a project. I was in uh, the Jillian province uh, uh, three weeks ago, four weeks ago, And we're working with the University of Illinois, and the objective is to increase corn production by 15% over the next uh, 12 months and demonstrate that we can do that. And so we brought in technology. We're working with seed partners. We're working with uh, chemical partners and demonstrating the capability. Now, the challenge they have, when you and I think about corn, we think about a corn harvester, corn combine the way we normally provide one. They pick corn. So if you, you know, if you were on a farm a few, several years ago, a generation ago, remember the old pickers that were tied to the tractor? They pick the corn, and they stick the corn cobs in the corn group. That's the way they pick corn in China. They don't have the infrastructure for drying. They don't have the infrastructure for handling it. So the first piece is increase the yield. You know, the yield in China is about 100 bushels per acre. Here it's 150 to 160 on average with farms getting up 200, 250 plus. So they've got to increase the yield and then they've got to put the infrastructure in place. So what we're trying to do is work on yield and then follow up with other partners and bring infrastructure in there. But it, the government's very focused on that and very engaged in that. Uh, their biggest problem is they don't have enough land, and the land that they do have is uh, being converted to desert quite rapidly, and water is a real issue. So we're working where we can, but that's also why trade is very important. We have to; They have to be able to feel they have enough self-sufficiency but comfortable a trade to be able to get that, and they're... You may know that China is very big in, in Africa right now. For they're putting a lot of infrastructure in to support trade.
0: Quite a bit of your remarks were talking about the importance of opening up the trade, trade barriers, and yet don't a lot of those come from some of our own farmers? And doesn't that put your company in sort of a, a challenging position?
1: <clears throat> well, you know, um, uh, farmers are never quite happy with anything. <laughs> They are always upset about the prices we charge. They're always upset about the prices they get, but they do a pretty good job. And, in fact, I would argue that the U.S. farmers are probably the most effective producers in the world. But many times you can get focused on your own local um, um, view of the world. And and I'll share an example with you that it's not just American farmers. We were in uh, Brazil several years ago meeting with some cotton farmers, and we were being taken to task by the trade barriers that the U.S. has erected to take care of the cotton producers here, and uh, and th- their contention was that they could supply cotton much more cost effectively than we could. And why wasn't John Deere? Because we're selling them cotton pickers. Why were we doing more to reduce the trade barriers in the United States? And we shared with them that we take care of and work with customers everywhere, and we have to be effective adv- advocates and consistent advocates for trade policies and trade um, um, open trade everywhere not always in concert with what our customers have. So if if we sit down and have a conversation with our farmer customers in the U.S., and and I would not be uh, afraid to tell them that we need to support open trade, and they can, you know, most of them are very competitive. But uh, sometimes the government's policies don't always support that as well as they should, and and it's a continuing issue. But I I, I think most of the farmers that I know in the U.S. are advocates of uh, trade and advocates of opening trade despite the discontinuities that exist from time to time. Yes, with regard to land in China, do you see land being an issue in other countries? Uh, we hear about the deforestation of the Amazon uh, jungle and a trade-off between preserving natural resources uh, and erosion uh, type yeah. issues. Uh, for instance, do you foresee if land is an issue in uh, helping to uh, double the food supply in 50 years? Do you see any kind of use of the oceans to maintain uh, floating farms, for instance, or floating farms over other waterways? Um, um, Well, let me back up. You know, there's about uh, an additional 17% of arable land available. That's it. And and, uh, uh, that does not anticipate cutting down the rainforest, uh, but there's not a lot of extra land. Not all that land will be converted to agriculture, but most of it is in the center part of Brazil, which is south of the rainforest, and most of it's in sub-Saharan Africa. So, I think we will see some general increase in agricultural land to help solve this, but not a lot. I think the, um, the, if, if the governments and the farmers that f- and the people that are around agriculture don't work hard to uh, assure that we uh, protect things like the rainforest, the society reactions could be in the short term very negative, and we could actually lose ground. And in fact, uh, if you go to Brazil today and you want to open a farm up in the, in the central part of Brazil, uh, you have to commit to have about 20% of your land uh, in natural preserve because they don't want you, they want to protect that natural preserve. So the government is actually proactively working on those issues and proactively trying to work with the deforestation issues, which is more a lumber issue as opposed to an agriculture issue. We have a similar thing going on in uh, Indonesia, for example. It's all about lumber being taken down. Um, I believe that uh, if we don't have governments working in concert together on this issue, we will uh, see short term dislocations because of that, uh, because people will take a short sighted view and either allow deforestation that will cause a corollary, corollary, corollary impact on society being more reactive to that and stopping the process. As far as water, food, uh, growing food in water and oceans is concerned, there's quite a bit of that today. Uh, if you were to go into the fjords in Norway, for example, they grow salmon uh, in large pens, and, and the salmon uh, that they send to um, uh, Japan is a different color meat than the salmon they send here because of dietary differences and dietary desires. So, th- so they're, they're using technology to meet those needs. There's not sufficient uh, capability that I know of to close this productivity gap. But the magnitude we have by uh, uh, aquaculture yet. I think it will be a piece of it, but I think it's going to be a small piece. First, I'd like to tell you I got to drive a John Deere cat when I was a kid and I really loved it.
0: (laughs) It was a lot of fun. I see two major problems with uh, the food supply for the world in the next few generations. One is monocultures and the other one is the resistance to genetically modified uh, crops. I assume John Deere must have thought about those things.
1: Yeah, we think a lot about them. Uh, um, um, I think the resistance to GMO crops, for example, is uh, is a transitory thing. That as food demand increases, people will drop their resistance. I was uh, uh, a few years ago. I was in in Brussels visiting with uh, the ag dele- the ag leader for the uh, uh, European Union, and I was asking him about when when is uh, the EU is going to drop their their uh, 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 resistance to GMO-based crops, and he he was uh, he actually thought in the next five to seven years we'd see that drop because if they don't, farmers in Europe, France, and Germany in particular will not be competitive on the world market, and they have the same issue in smaller scale that I described in China, where they have to maintain. A rural community and economics in there, and if they continue those policies that prevent the farmers from being competitive, it will cost them more in terms of subsidies to support uh, and almost a welfare type. So, so they'll, it'll come. Now, um, but I think again we'll see uh, it won't be a broad-based acceptance everywhere, but uh, productivity and 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 people wanting to sit around in a room like this and eat will eventually solve that problem, I think. In terms of monocultures, uh, um, we are spending a lot of time with seed companies in terms of how do we uh, support uh, the varieties that they're creating and and getting a more rich uh, engagement with uh, uh, to provide the the diversity you need for seed production and so you don't inbreed in the crops a lot of uh, issues. Seed companies have a lot of work to do there, long ways to go, but the farming, I'm confident that the farming infrastructures will accept that and help that without, as, as they evolve, but a lot of it has to be led by the seed companies at this point in time, I believe.
0: Can you give me your thoughts on the uh, water deficiency in California? I realize we have our own problems here, but according to The Economist, they're out of water.
1: Yeah, well, so I'm going to get myself in trouble here. I'll try not to be like uh, Rand Paul, but... Uh, <laughs> um, uh, the water issue in California is twofold there is there has been over uh, uh, pumping of water in fact, the water table is much lower than it than it would be otherwise through bad practices but today the issue is pr- principally a uh, a uh, political issue and um, uh, the uh, many of the farmers about five to ten years ago started shifting from from perennial crops row crops to uh, from row crops to perennial crops growing trees and nut trees and et cetera, because they needed less water to do that now the problem is the uh, policies coming through the state legislature and through the state government are even restricting water to uh, more and they're actually tearing up those tree crops because they can't get enough water much of the water is being diverted to a belief that they can pump fresh water from the valley into uh, the marshes and the uh, areas around, say, the Oakland Bay, et cetera, to regenerate uh, that environment. I think uh, I think that's a misguided p- policy, uh, but I understand the the position on the other side where they want to do that. The problem is technology is there to solve that problem on both and satisfy both sides, but we've not, but the ideal ideology is not letting people do that. Precision, precision. Uh, irrigation and precision points of irrigation uh, is capable of solving that problem today, and all you have to do is look at what's going on in Israel. So here's a, here is a, here's a country that is uh, a, a desert, and um, water is very short uh, in short supply there. And uh, uh, five years ago, the government uh, um, said they were going to reduce the water supply for agriculture, but they, at the same time, they wanted to increase the uh, crop output by 50%. Uh, through precision irrigation, micro-irrigation, they've actually accomplished that. And uh, it's a small micro That's why I think this stuff is possible, but you have to be done in, in, in uh, concert. And so, you, you know, if we go down into areas where uh, they have uh, um, irrigation for, we normally think of this kind of irrigation for... Uh, um, Oh, grapes and vineyards and that type of stuff. It's it's actually we're using it now for uh, cotton, for corn, for sugarcane, and you can really increase yields. Yeah, you can increase yields considerably with this technology. It's expensive to install, but uh, um, rather than having uh, government uh, subsidies for equipment that doesn't generate that, if we can redirect the government support to put this kind of equipment in. I think that would be a much better use of that. And I think I think we'll get there. I mean, again, when you get up in the morning and you turn on the faucet and there's no water there, it kind of focuses your attention on that. But Unfortunately, I hope we don't get to a crisis mode, but a crisis will change a lot of people's opinions, which is what happened in Israel as well. This, this
0: is water. a question to relating to, to agribusiness. Um, with the, with the uh, great demand for food in, coming up in the world, with the, uh, ultimately a finite supply of water and of land, so much is going to depend on the genetically changing crops, but also, as you've mentioned several times, the chemicals. Now, relating to the chemicals, um, uh, it, uh, many in agriculture, and you've seen in Wall Street Journal and things like that, are worried about a possible harmful effect, possible, of, uh, of use of the wrong chemicals, overuse of chemicals, this and that, and you've seen that many times. Would you like to address that
1: question, please? Sure. Whether we like it or not, uh, to meet the demands, it is all those things. It is uh, genetic modification, more drought resistant crops, but you need chemicals and pesticides that need to be to, to help the process because it doesn't do any good to have a crop that has that capability and not provide the protection around it with those chemicals. I think the big thing that we're excited about, though, is using the precision placement technology that I mentioned with GPS. You can use much, much, much less of the material, very precisely apply it, and actually increase yield. so when we started on this process about uh, five years ago we we have a, a technology when you 're planting a crop in the field and uh, and the uh, uh, you 're using uh, the GPS to to place where the rows are in the crop and and typically your accuracy is about that much about a half an inch uh, uh, so you know what's going on. What you're able to do is side dress the seed when you, and put the chemicals in at the time you plant the seed, use much less, and we actually get a 5 to 10% yield out of that with, with a fraction of the chemical use. So I think that we, there's ways to solve that. Certainly, if everybody used John Deere equipment, we'd be better off. <laughs> I'll
0: let that, I, last there. Although that should be the closing statement. It was, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Took away your thunder. <laughs> uh, Mr. Everett, I see one other threat to agriculture that I'm curious about and that is the threat of a volcanic winter. In 1815 the volcano Tambora exploded and caused catastrophic uh, crop failures. A 100 years later, Krakatoa blew. It seems inevitable that it's going to happen again it, so I'm not real sure how to frame the question but I, I guess I'm curious as if anybody's given any serious thought to this in the in the upper levels of the agriculture industry, and, and what are your thoughts on this?
1: It's interesting you you uh, asked that question. I was in a discussion uh, uh, last week about that particular subject and, and you know, trying to estimate what would be the impact of the, uh, the particularly the Icelandic volcano, which I'm not even able to pronounce, but, um, and nobody's thought about it yet, quite frankly. Um, um, the... The world challenge that I laid out, doubling agriculture's output in 40 years, anticipates there's no major droughts, anticipates there's no major uh, uh, geological issues like you described, anticipates there's no major wars. And so all all of this is, uh, you know, the the, the assumption that we can work through these issues without dealing with that. If that happens, I think the challenges will be significant. However, I'm very confident that when we unleash the capability and the creativity of the human uh, of humans around the world working on a problem, we will solve it. So I, I think we could work through it. We just haven't had to focus on it yet.
0: And again if they use John Deere equipment
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you very much John. For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www. DFWworld.org